Welcome, Undertow faithful. We are uh, happy to have you back here in the Undertow for episode number 20 of the Undertow podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Tonight we're talking about Kill or Be Killed number 15, which is the first issue of the fourth arc of the book. This is uh, Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri, and I am joined on the other end of the line by uh, Mr. Bubba Beasley. How are you doing, Bubba? Doing very well. Glad glad to be back with you. Um, uh, missed... Uh, the recording last month of uh, with scheduling and everything, but caught uh, caught the, uh, the the show afterwards and thought you did a great job. But I'm very very happy to be back and yeah, I'm I missed uh, the recording and the venting and you know sharing suggestions on uh, recommended readings and on uh, on uh, on uh, adult beverages. So yeah, <laughs> and I think we're both we're both drinking Guinness tonight, if I heard correctly. Uh, yeah, I just uh, popped open a, an extra stout on my end. And I, I opened a second Guinness draft because the first one was um, undrinkable. Uh, just a, a little tip, don't freeze your Guinness. I, I, I guess my, my can was too far back uh, against the uh, back wall of the fridge. It ended up freezing, expanding, then recontracting, and I think it, it basically broke the seal, so it was just completely flat and when the the foam is is half the point that that made it fairly undrinkable so so here it, the tip is to drink a fresh guinness don't don't try to freeze it and thaw it so well luckily you had one on deck yep i'm prepared <laughs> yeah as always uh you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com they are also available on itunes uh you can reach out to us if you'd like to uh uh, give us a shout at Undertow Podcast on Twitter, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, like Bubba said, I'm happy to be back here with uh, both of us on board for, for this for this uh, episode. I'm going to start things off with uh, the news of the day uh, of the world of Brubaker and Phillips. I know there's, there's quite a fair amount of it. Um, we've had some listeners reach out. Um, on Twitter and share some share some videos of Sean Phillips that there were you know lots of interesting tidbits thrown out in that video. So I'm going to hand things off to Bubba and he can kind of get us caught up on uh, the news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just on a personal note is so I've been maintaining uh, the the blog a criminal blog at criminalcomic.blogspot.com and at the beginning of the year I started a dedicated Twitter feed just to separate my my love of college football and my weird sense of humor and everything else and politics and religion and everything else away from the the crime comics I now have a, a new Twitter handle um, de- devoted exclusively to the blog uh, criminal blog so it's at criminal blog uh but the big big news is yeah uh kill or be killed uh, number first of all um we have some uh second printings and variant covers uh on the way um issue 15 uh, surprisingly sold out and i say surprisingly because you know this late in a run you you wouldn't expect um the the demand to outpace uh the supply quite quite so much as to demand a uh, a second printing but uh, the second printing with a very similar cover to the first will be out the week after uh, number 16 comes out, which is uh, as of this recording this week. So uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, is uh, issue 16. Then uh, the week after, February 21st, um, is the second printing of issue 15. The more interesting um, news in terms of additional printings and variant covers is a uh, variant cover in March – um, Image Comics has this uh, 
this promotional campaign uh, running through this year, you know, hashtag we believe. And in March, it's going to be we believe in artists, an emphasis on on the uh, artists of comic books who it's it's odd to say that they're overlooked. But then, you know, you see the news about the, the killer be killed film adaptation and they they barely mention uh, Sean Phillips, even though he's co-creator, uh, if they do mention him at all. And uh, so in March, the um, issue of uh, Killer Be Killed, um, number uh, 17, um, will come in two covers. There's the standard uh, cover that, that has already been solicited, and then there is a wraparound virgin um, variant cover. Both versions do on March uh, 21st, and this virgin wraparound cover will, uh, will have um, – uh, it will have. Um, oh, I apologize. Yes, uh, we'll have no titles, no endorsement quote, no names, no logos, no jacket copy um, from the press release. These wraparound covers feature solely the jaw-dropping artwork that fans won't want to miss. And in this case, it's a brand new piece of artwork uh, done by Sean Phillips, uh, a, um, a a wraparound painting. Of uh, Dylan in the 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 now iconic red uh, ski mask and in the um, straight jacket now undone, walking determinedly uh, out uh, from the uh, the snowbound mental institution. Very striking artwork, and I wouldn't be surprised if if uh, Sean Phillips eventually uh, offers prints of this artwork uh, on his uh, on his on uh, through his online store. So. Um, so multiple covers coming up for Killer Be Killed, but one of the biggest bits of news is uh, from a couple of interviews with uh, Sean Phillips. It looks like uh, Killer Be Killed is actually wrapping up. So there are two interviews uh, worth pointing out. One is by um, a site called The Reading Lists, which kind of picked uh, Sean Phillips' brain for for books he would recommend uh, for people going into his uh, into his line of work uh, for. His favorite books, favorite genres, uh, that sort of thing. What books he's reading now for his job, and he mentioned or, or, uh, that he's doing research on World War One and research on uh, TV in the late 1950s. And from a subsequent um, interview with uh, the uh, French site ComicsBlog.fr for French, uh, an interview with um, Phillips at the uh, the French comic convention. Um, and uh, at a French comic convention, uh, Angloame, uh, which I'm surely butchered, uh, they posted a brief blurb in French about the interview, and then they subsequently, just this past week, posted a 20-minute uh, video clip of the interview. And the interview is in English with French subtitles, so we get a much clearer idea uh, of what the news is about, what what uh, Phillips is um, reporting about his upcoming schedule. And the original French story kind of kind of buried the lead. So um, very quickly, he had mentioned in that reading list interview that he is doing research uh, for World War One. Uh, that book or that research is evidently for a um, a book called Traces of the Great War, uh, celebrating the centenary of uh, of World War One, um, which will be uh, offered through this upcoming year's. Um, uh, Lakes International Comic Art Festival, and it will include um, 
an anthology that includes a number of collaborations between graphic artists and writers and between artists and illustrators who have never worked together before. And Sean Phillips is working with uh, novelist Ian Rankin for, for that bit of work. The other bit of research into 1950s uh, television should come as no surprise to anybody who's been reading you know, Ed Brubaker's newsletter and, and the back pages is that it's uh, for a sequel to The Fade Out. Um, and a sequel in the sense that it's in the same universe. A few more, char- a few of the characters from the fade out are carrying over into this story. Um, it, they're advancing the uh, the timeline by a decade and change, and or a decade or so. And um, Sean Phillips does say that you know because it's a Brubaker Phillips story, it probably does involve murder. But but it doesn't sound like it's a traditional sequel. But the most interesting thing about this is that that. Um, there's not one sequel coming. There's two, and um, the French site reported that these two sequels will be six-issue miniseries. Phillips said it could be six issues, might might not be, rather than twelve like the uh, the previous um, or like the original story. But at this point, they don't settle on the number of issues in advance. Just like a novelist doesn't determine the number of pages of the book he's going to write in advance, but the book will be, be coming out uh, – should be coming out toward the end of the year because Kill or Be Killed will be wrapping up before uh, the the before year's end, before the end of uh, 2018. In the meantime, uh, Sean Phillips is working – is still working on, on a novella that will be um, produced in between his work on the issues uh, of Kill or Be Killed. It will result in a uh, direct um, production of a hardcover. Um, that a one-off 60-page hardcover, um, but it's not clear anymore whether it's still the the criminal novella that Ed Brubaker mentioned in the newsletter, uh, in a newsletter email newsletter uh, over the summer. Instead, it's being described as a romance comic, so perhaps it evolved from a criminal story and just didn't fit into that universe and evolved into a romance comic. Uh, Sean Phillips did mention in the inter- interview, you know, Two sequels to the fade out and more criminal stories to tell, but it didn't sound like uh, this um, the, this graphic novella was an, an additional criminal story, or it, or at least it sound, didn't sound like it is anymore. Though nothing's been announced, they, he held back on the title. It's uh, it does seem that this doesn't involve his research into World War One, and it doesn't involve his research into. Um, the golden age of uh, of television production in Los Angeles, you know, particularly Desilu in that era, uh, but it's not clear to me that it's a it, that it is still a criminal novella. Yeah, the way he worded that in that video, I definitely felt the same way. Like he he specifically mentions that more criminal stories are on the horizon, but um, he mentions that after you know talking about the romance novella. So yeah, I tend to think that that's no longer a criminal story, but you know, time will tell. And I, I did want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, Kevin Sells, um, who is a a friend of ours through Twitter that uh, reaches out to both of us often with these bits of news. And since it's this video, this French um, video of Sean Phillips being interviewed, so we really appreciate that. Kevin Kevin comes across some some interesting news items in the world of Brubaker and Phillips, and uh, so we're happy that he shares that. So we appreciate that, Kevin. Thanks. Yeah, and and Kevin pinpoints what the news is. 
um, that uh, that French story, that original story, completely ignored. You know, it didn't bury the lead; it ignored the lead in that um, what is ha- had originally been described as an ongoing uh, comic, uh, "Killer Be Killed." You know, you, you figure ten ten issues a year from uh, the Brubaker Phillips team. We just had issue fifteen come out in January. This series will probably be done uh, at or before issue twenty four, which would put it. Right about at the same length as uh, Sleeper, their work for uh, in the Wildstorm uh, universe uh, for DC, and the same length as uh, as Fatal, which is is kind of surprising. Not sure what to make of it, and not sure to you know, uh, um, not sure the reasoning behind it. Though though before we started recording, uh, Robert, you mentioned uh, an obvious probable connection with uh, yeah. Well, I've, I've- I think I brought that up um, on the last episode, that one that I did by myself, but I'm not sure. I just, and I had nothing to base that on, but I remember when I read that uh, Killer Be Killed had been optioned for a movie, um, I did think to myself logically that I, I kind of thought this this uh, series would probably be wrapping up sooner rather than later because I just found it hard to believe that, you know, with the kinds of money that has to be thrown around in Hollywood to make to to option a film. Um, I assume that no one was buying into a movie without knowing kind of where it was headed, you know, because Sean and Sean indicates that he doesn't really know where it's headed. But I just thought that probably a producer, a Hollywood producer, would have at least had a conversation with Ed, um, you know, about the end of the the project and where it was headed, because it would be hard to say to sign off and say, yeah, I want to pay you this much money to make this film without knowing exactly where it was headed. So I kind of thought that it may be ending sooner rather than later and and Sean pretty much confirmed that in that in that video he was he was surprisingly forthcoming in that video until it got to the uh, the title for that novella and then he clammed up uh, uh, under uh, that's true yep. <laughs> that's true but it's a, yeah it's a great video and it's I was shocked you know I was expecting a you know a 3 to 5 minute kind of highlight reel but it was it was 20 minutes and it was just Sean talking i mean there were the interviewer was off camera um, with uh, very succinct questions. And, uh, yeah, like I said, Sean was very forthcoming. It's a really, really interesting thing that um, our listeners, I'm sure, would, would enjoy watching. Yeah, definitely worth watching. And um, for for those who who don't read French and, and go to comics blog, comic, um, go to uh, comicsblog.fr, I have the video embedded directly in a recent uh, post at uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com, and yeah, the, even even stuff beyond, you know, how they work together, how they communicate, how infrequently they talk. <laughs> you know, it's really inter- interesting interview. Absolutely. So. Yeah, I was surprised at that little tidbit when Sean mentioned that he hasn't seen Ed in person, and I, th- I think he said like five years. So, uh, which of course time gets away, and I know they're both busy guys, and they live, you know, on obviously on far away from each other geographically so uh it made sense but i still was surprised even that it had been five years yeah and then uh they did mention speaking of five years mention the the exclusive uh deal they have with image comics which is what's what's allowing them to to uh change up on uh, uh their projects and do you know branch out and and do things that that do not require any sort of approval any mentions is his presumption that that uh, that deal will be extended that it will be renewed or continued so yeah i thought that was funny sean acted like the the interviewer asked him specifically about that and said well hey you're coming up to your five-year mark and 
And Sean acted like he hadn't even thought about it. He said, "Really? Oh, I thought it'd been. I thought we were only about halfway." But yep. but the uh, the interviewer assured him that no, you're actually close to the five year mark. But yeah, he acted like it was just a foregone conclusion that they would extend that. That time. they were very happy with their uh, their current place at Image Comics. Yeah, Tempest Fugit, time flies. Yeah, and if they don't, they they do have this dream project that that is worth uh, watching the interview for as well. So. <laughs> That's a good point. I wrote that down as well. Well, shall we uh, transition here into Killer Be Killed number 15? Yep, yep. And it's um, presumably at this point we're past the midpoint for this series, shockingly. Um, and, um, yeah, it's picking up from the end of the last arc. So so just a very quick glance at the, the first 15 issues is that we have, you know, 14 issues of story where a few threads are being balanced and a few plot lines are being being advanced and and one of them being the actual killings where we have um, the the killings culminating in mass murder you know an outright uh, gang war with the Russian mob and if this is going to be a a a shortly ending series that sort of shootout in the in the flop house in the the um, in, in the bordello where um, that opening scene that, that recurs in, in flashback again and again in this previous arc, if that's the, the most violent movie m- moment of, uh, of the series and the most cinematic, I, I think it makes sense to, to have it so emphatic in the, uh, in the story. You know, it's very much like, and I hate to spoil you know, a movie that's 40 years old, it's very much like a, a taxi driver, you know. It's very much a climatic moment, even if it's obviously not the end of the story. So we have the actual killing, the, which culminates with the, the war with the gang mob. We have Dylan's flailing attempts at a normal life. The biggest question being uh, his relationship with best friend, unrequited lover, um, you know, the will they, won't they issue uh, question between um, Peter and Mary, uh, between uh, uh, Dylan and Kira. And then you have behind those questions the driving force of this curse and the demon. Is the demon real or not? Is he just a delusion? Um, and, and I think also along the way, um, listening to, to last month's podcast, I think that, uh, Robert, your point that this is becoming a noir where you, know, you want, almost want the protagonist to find a way out of this pretty, pretty, um, or extremely difficult situation, but you doubt that, it, that he'll find a happy ending. It's not clear that he wants out. One of the things was that he was imagining a happy life, you know, with Kira, now that the Russian mob is presumably taken out, you know, cut off the head and, and everybody else falls to shit as, as he said. But he was also saying, do I, do I really want to give this up? <laughs> He's begun to enjoy it a lot. You know, he enjoyed it beginning with his very first kill in the back of the of his mind. There was, he mentions there was a part of him that that worried him that that he enjoyed it, and he he found a he found a a purpose, and that leads into, you know, if the demon is real, um, why is he is he back on the scene now? If he's not real, what what part of Dylan's psyche is is he manifesting? So, and that re- really, this issue picks up with the um, the cliffhanger where issue fourteen 
um, left off. Yeah, every single arc up to now has ended with with the demon. The first arc, uh, issues one through four, um, the reader discovers, and Dylan does not, uh, the reader discovers uh, the demon in the artwork by his his um, uh, father, who had, you know, the artist who had committed suicide. At the end of the second arc, issue 10, he discovers that same artwork Dylan does. And then at the, the end of this issue, having supposedly taken care of, of his medications, seeing a therapist, and taking care of the existential, you know, the true, truly life-threatening uh, danger posed by the Russian mob – the demon shows up again. <laughs> this time, this time talking directly, uh, directly to the protagonist again. So, yeah, the demon disappeared there for a few issues, but I think it's become apparent that the demon's going to play a part in this story until the end. Um, whether he be a, a real tangible demon or, like you said, part of something in Dylan's psyche, um, he seems to be, he's going to be a factor for sure. But yeah, this issue he was everywhere. I mean, the whole. Um, the whole issue was revolved, revolving around the demon and his effect on, on Dylan. So of course, uh, I, and I missed him. A, I missed the demon. I'll be honest. <laughs> well, he's he's back in full force. I, you know, we'll, we will give our our spoiler warning. I think we're probably safe considering that sixteen comes out in just a few days. So um, we assume that everyone has read number fifteen, but we're going to dive into that to that issue. So um, we will give a spoiler alert. Um, like I mentioned earlier, this is the first issue of the fourth arc um, of Killer Be Killed. And yeah, number sixteen is coming out later this week. So, uh, yeah, the opening of the the issue, which we had, I think I talked about a little bit on the last episode as well, because we had seen a preview for it. So I had I had seen the first couple of pages posted already. Um, but it pairs Dylan's dialogue talking about the hardships of everyday life, and uh, kind of what he saw as the depressing news of the day, paired with these idyllic winter scenes out of um, in New in New York City, Central Park. So we're back to winter, uh, the the season where issue number one started. So I guess we're a year in. Yep. Um, we we and then there's we, this. We did establish those first three arcs were pretty much 2017. So we're looking at the the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, and and these first few pages um, are a great illustration of something that Phillips does bring up in that um, that that interview at the uh, the French Comics Festival of. The ability in comic books to have real contrast between words and text, where the narration doesn't have to to match what you see, it can actually be contrast. And th- the real contrast here is, I, I think, it raises the question, but does not answer. You know, which is which is the truth, and which is is the fantasy? Is the the kids playing in the snow and um and, and uh. Ice skating at Rockefeller Center, are and you know the idyllic scenes in the park and the and, and the birds in the air, um, and the birds on the ground are the, are these, um, is that reality and is Dylan being overly pessimistic, bordering on on not only fatalistic but nihilistic, or has he d- does he have real insight into just how miserable life is and everybody else? Is the one you know? It's the old cliche that that the only sane people are the ones in the nut house, and and I don't, I don't think this issue answers the question. I'm not sure this series even will answer the question, but I think it raises it in a very, very subtle, very understated way. Yeah, that's an excellent point because it was there's and there's a really there's a really cool transition that happens at the beginning of the issue, um, at the end of 
of kind of this montage of idyllic scenes, we have we see the train driving through the snow in New York City. And then the next shot, we jump to Dylan's viewpoint looking out the window um, of his mental hospital. And we see that same train or a similar train going down the track. And it's a, like I said, it's a real subtle transition, but it was a cool effect um, to kind of take us from one world into the next. And so he's standing at the window. False and Prison Blues, too. It's a, it's a Johnny Cash song, basically, is, is, is his life now. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. We're all living in a Johnny Cash song, I think, yep. somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, we see uh, Dylan in the mental institution, and he's in the middle of a group session with a doctor who is encouraging him to talk, but Dylan is standing off away from the group and facing the window, you know, seemingly disinterested in what's happening behind him. Um and yeah, like I said, this was all in the in, in the preview for the issue, so we had seen up to this point before. But Dylan reiterates that uh, you know, this story is not building to some twist where we find out the entire entire narrative is just me talking to a psychiatrist. Um, he says this is just me talking to you, so he kind of shuts that door before it can be even opened. You know, for for people like Bubba and I to kind of break down. So he just says that's definitely not where this is headed. So um, I was glad to read that. And then at that point, the issue jumps back in time to Dylan in bed with Kira, um, presumably shortly after the moment where issue number 14 ended, where uh, Dylan saw the demon's face superimposed over Kira's face. So we kind of jump back in time, obviously, to build up to how he ended up in this mental hospital. Yeah. And he's clearly not sleeping well, understandably. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's laying awake. Kira, of course, looks like she's, you know sleeping comfortably but but dylan is laying there and uh he mentions that you know this incident when he found out the demon was his what he calls his family curse so his you know his dad was haunted by the demon apparently his half brother was as well um according to the psychiatric reports that they had gotten from dylan's mom and yeah there was one one little note on the art at this section um, Dil- the expression on Dylan's face as he's laying awake I thought was just really powerful. His face is half covered in shadow, and he, he truly, truly looks shaken to the core. Does this settle the question of where the, whether the demon is real? I know, again, no. with, when, in that French interview, uh, Phillips raises the question that maybe that's not an important part of the story, whether he's real or not. But it's certainly clear at this point that Dylan believes he's real and i think all the evidence points to it you know is that, yeah, it that... kind of does I, th- I think did sean even say that he didn't even really know 100 percent whether the demon would end up real or not um you know he acted like he just gets sections of the story from ed and acted like he really didn't i don't think he had necessarily a definitive answer on that no he usually doesn't get an entire script at one time either uh, for for a single issue so yeah he did say that at at some point uh, Brubaker knew where where this story was ending, and I and it sounded like he had let uh, Sean Phillips in on the in on the secret, but that the um, story has since taken a swerve, that it's gone in a different direction. So there was an interesting thing, just a note on Sean Phillips' art. I was reading a review of this comic on uh, this is DoomRocket.com, and I thought they had a pretty uh, apt description of Sean Phillips's work. They they said. Uh, he does depression well, whether it be a stark landscape or a vibrant city scene. Most arresting is Dylan's unchanging visage, taking that shell-shocked look from the subway to the cinema and even back to the bedroom. It's the look of one who has given up too early, who can't even trust the veracity of his own machinations. It's the type of haunting that will make you want to know the ending. 
So yeah, that's definitely the the uh, a better description than I can do of Dylan's expression throughout most of this book. He's definitely haunted. Um, in, in every scene he does, you know, there's montages of him going through his everyday life with the demon hulking behind him at, at every scene. Um, so you can kind of see this building to this this point where um, he just can't take it anymore, basically, and something has to give. Again, the the artwork's great, not just with uh, Dylan, but with the demon. You know, the, it, you would you wouldn't want to see too much of a demon. It's kind of like every you know monster movie: the less you you see, the better. But yeah, asking about the killer be killed uh, film adaptation. You know, in that interview, Philip in that video interview, uh, Philip said that you know he, he doesn't really want to roll in it because you know what what he would be doing would be you know, art design or storyboarding. He just wants the executive producer credit, and that's about it. I and, and he mentioned that you know so much of his stuff is is rooted in realism, either in the present day or a period piece that that there isn't so much for him to do. If if this uh, film adaptation does see the light of day, one thing I definitely hope is that uh, the de- the demon on film is, is maybe somewhat uh, uh, quite faithful to um, to the demon in this comic book. Maybe a little more two dimensional. Maybe this sort of distortion of uh, of what you're seeing. So you know, a distortion of film or digital. Um, but clearly there, but but also just as clearly not in the same in the same dimension in the same plane of existence as his surroundings and he's <laughs> the the most interesting thing about uh, about this is that so often in these pages he the the, the demon is um is staring at Dylan but it's either a p- point of view a POV shot from Dylan's perspective, looking at the demon, or the demon's following following him, and we're looking over Dylan's shoulder, and time and time again, uh, the demon, at least as he is drawn, isn't looking at Dylan as much as he is looking at us. It's particularly in those first two pages where where the demon appears, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of unnerving how much uh, the demon is breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> no, that's a good point, and. I, that was something I wrote down, too, about this issue, is that it's a slightly different perspective, I think, of the demon in this particular issue. Um, there were a few times, like I said, the demon was in this issue more than he usually is. I mean, he's in you know virtually the entire issue. Uh, but there's a few angles where that kind of emphasize just the sheer mass of the demon. He really seems to be like a hulking figure in this in this particular issue that I didn't really notice in earlier issues. You know, he's just this huge presence when you see him following behind um, Dylan, like on the street. And then I think there was, you know, I think Ed mentioned in in something that he had originally had, you know, a a significantly different um, image of the demon in his head that he, you know, saw it headed, but then Sean had taken it in a slightly different direction. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that plays out in a Hollywood film, like you said, if it sees the light of day, you know, kind of which one wins out, which style wins out. It, it became the buddy comedy we all knew and, and secretly wanted, even if we didn't realize it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah, so the, the demon, there's these montages of, you know, the showing this demon, how this demon has become omnipresent in Dylan's life. So we see him haunting him in the subway in class on the street. Um, you know, and the demon is constantly pointing out all these horrible deeds that people have done that Dylan is is 
passing by in everyday life, you know, basically urging him to kill again. Uh, Dylan says, ticking off the sins of anyone we passed by. Uh, so the Dylan is out for blood still, obviously, and pushing him towards that path. Um, and while Dylan is in class, there was one thing I, I took note of. His professor was lecturing about uh, Mikhail Bulgakov, the Russian writer, uh, whose best-known work is The Master and Margarita, which is a, a satirical drama about Satan's visit to Moscow. It's not a book that I've read, um, but I knew that I, I knew something about it, and uh, I remember reading, I think the first time I read anything about this book was um, back, Pearl Jam released an album in 1998 called Yield, and there's a song um, on that album called Pilot, spelled like Pontius Pilot, and uh, it's referencing that book as well. And I think that's the first time that I came across um, a reference to the Master and Margarita. So, you know, it's been a long time coming, but I, I think I definitely need to read this book. But that was something that, you know, these literary references have popped up sporadically through um, several times through issues of Kill or Be Killed, typically when Dylan is in class. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know if there could be any significance to what the professor mentions or if it's just, you know, supposed to be a realistic um, type of subject that would be lectured on in a in a college setting, so that's kind of interesting to look at all those in a uh, in you know a pattern and see which ones have been brought up. I know this has happened maybe three or four times throughout the the series. And Dylan also mentions that uh, he has doubled his medication after seeing the demon, but has seen no change. So he says, if the meds weren't working, did that prove he was an actual real demon, or was I just on the wrong medication? So he's still having this internal debate. And that's the question, like, from from uh, A Christmas Carol, what the, the ghost of Jacob Marley asked um, Scrooge is, you know, what what other proof would you have of me other than your senses? And Scrooge's reply is that the senses are, are a delicate thing, you know. It, it could be a stomach ache. It could be indigestion. There's more, more gravy about you than grave. But... Yeah, at this point he's gone, and, and I think it, it's never explicitly said, except you know Rex, the drug dealer, referring to his medications, perhaps literally, as opposed to, to a euphemism for uh, for pot or whatever. But it, I think reading between the lines, we we saw at the beginning of the story that Dylan was going to a drug dealer, getting medication that um, that he knows he needs. And it turns out getting getting um, uh, uh, dummy medication, you know, the wrong, completely wrong stuff, mislabeled, but getting the medication he thinks he needs from a drug dealer so that he can avoid having to go to the therapist and getting a prescription that away. Now that that's out of the way, he's going to a therapist. He's he's supposedly getting the right meds, though he isn't being completely honest with the uh, not the therapist with the uh, psychiatrist, being being completely honest. With his doctor, it does continue to close the um, the the wiggle room, the margin for the for this thing being a uh, a figment in Dylan's head. We and I think, at least at the moment, I think it is an entirely safe assumption to to treat this demon as real. And we're going to see it in this issue a moment that raises the question of whether the demon actually knows more than Dylan does. So I was going to say another note on the art. I think my uh, favorite panel of the issue is the exterior shot of Dylan and Kira walking in front of the theater, and then you just see this real faint shadow of the demon following them. And um, 
it's a great shot. You know, I love, I, I'm a sucker for these street scenes that Sean Phillips and uh, Betty Brightweiser shine on. But uh, yeah, Brightweiser's colors on the theater marquee are, are really something. So I, I loved that image. And like I said, it was a more subtle, a, a more subtle take on the demon following behind Dylan as opposed to a lot of the other representations of him, like I said, as this hulking figure. But it's a, it's a very, very cool frame. Um, and, and beautiful colors too. I mean, it's 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 amazing. Yeah. You you would think the assignment of um, of winter in the city, you know, with snow, would provide for very flat, bland, you know, uh, uh, one note coloring. And instead, we get scene after scene um, with coloring from yeah Elizabeth Brightweiser, Betty Brightweiser, where the different scenes are being established very clearly through the color and it's and it's very you know you go from pastels to kind of this burnt orange to this fading purple in the scene that you're talking about here and it's just really gorgeous stuff so so when even when they do a, the the team does a um, a true romance comic without any without any crime murder sociopathy demon possessions lovecraftian horrors you know that sort of thing. I, they definitely have to bring Brightweiser with them because this is, you know, apart from the demon, this is actually pretty romantic stuff. But yeah, so Dylan is just, like I said, throughout this issue, becoming completely engulfed by the demon's presence. Uh, you know, you see these constant scenes of Kira happy, laughing. You know, obviously, it looks like their their relationship is is blossoming, but but Dylan is just tortured throughout the whole thing. You know, he's. I don't think there. You know, there's not a smile from Dylan throughout the whole issue. Um, but he begins, you know, he gets to this point where he just starts contemplating telling Kira about everything, the demon, the vigilante killings. Um, and so we see him lying in bed one night a few weeks later, and he decides he decides that he has to tell Kira everything. So um, there's another interesting line from Dylan here where he says, if I just kept my mouth shut, it probably would have saved some lives, just not mine, and I needed to be saved. So that, you know, raises an interesting question of whose lives he's talking about to come. Um, so there's obviously some serious deaths on the horizon because he mentions this that he would have saved some lives. Yep. Um, and it points to the need that he that he it's the need for absolution for confession. It's yeah yeah. But Mason does Mason does manage to survive this issue yet again. Um, so you know I know Bubba and I were prognosticating early in the run that we thought Mason was not long for this world, but he has managed to stick around. You know here we're um, in issue number fifteen and. Uh, Mason has a dramatic moment, but he is still he is still kicking. Yeah, and and the everything collides. You know, the relationship with Kira, the 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 very strained relationship with with his roommate and her ex boyfriend Mason, um, and you know the conversation with the demon, the demon still being there, still talking with Dylan, and yeah, if if Mason does make it through the end of this series in one piece, you know, good for him, but he's. It, this issue alone, he is shown to to have a pretty critical role. It's it's his presence that is the catalyst for um, for for Dylan's um, I don't know incarceration isn't the right word uh, institutionalized yeah yeah so he Dylan does in fact you know begin to confess everything to to Kira and the demon just gets you know really animated and keeps telling him to stop and as a last resort he tells Dylan that Mason is listening at the door. And so this is the moment that Bubba was alluding to. Um, Dylan throws open the door. Things escalate quickly between he and Mason. Uh, you know, Dylan is yelling, just, you know, livid and yelling at Mason and the demon both, um, which Mason and Kira obviously can't see the demon. 
and he begins to physically fight with Mason. And Dylan turns his anger towards the demon and starts to attack him. Um, he begins, we see him strangling the demon until it's revealed to the reader that Dylan is actually strangling Mason. Strangling Mason. Uh, and this was an effective scene that I thought, you know, that's it was pretty impressive. I think this would be a very tricky effect to pull off in a, in a comic um, as opposed to other mediums. You see this kind of effect done in, in film quite often to where uh, you, you take on the viewer, you know, or the, the character's perspective, and then you, you jump back and you realize that, you know, what you were seeing as the character is not what's actually happening. And so they, they managed to pull this off in a comic, which I think would be quite a challenge. So we're seeing what you know what Dylan was seeing, and then we realize that what he was seeing was not reality. And then the colors get psychedelic, and you get these swir- swirling effects, almost like um, fingerprints in the background. And- yeah, I mean, it was it it, be- it was maybe slightly clunky in a couple places, and maybe a little bit confusing to follow. But but that seemed to be mostly by design. And and like I said, the effect was powerful once you realized what exactly was happening. And so you know, Kira is is still standing there and seeing all this happen. Um, and ends up breaking a lamp over Dylan's head to stop him from killing Mason. Although I did take note that it appeared that Dylan actually figured out what he was doing prior to to Kira actually smashing the lamp over his head, and he seemed to stop strangling Mason. Um, but obviously this would all be happening in a very quick time span, so I understand how that could that could happen. But it did seem like he kind of snapped out of it, in a sense, and, noted, and saw that it was Mason prior to, uh, you know, Kira busting this lamp over his head and then we we see a couple moments you know with dylan out of the picture so you know presumably a a reconstruction from from the narrator's point of view and it's it's at this moment and it's literally the the halfway point if you see where the staples are the halfway point in the issue where you get to the institutionalization i almost wish that we had seen seen more and maybe or maybe in a subsequent issue we come since we had a full issue devoted to Kira and we've already seen some of her backstory told uh, prior to that I I'd like to see not only what Kira does um, from the moment where where she knocks out Dylan to to his institutionalization but what's going through through her head um, we we don't see her at all uh, after this moment and you know I've I have begun to to care for her as much as a character as much as if not even more so than Dylan because she's you know as screwed up as she is in her own personal life she's <laughs> she's not this anti-hero vigilante she's she's trying to do right so yeah she's i'd say easily the most sympathetic character in the book in my opinion yep um and seems to genuinely you know want the best for Dylan it seems to be sincere in her feelings towards Dylan. So, uh, yeah, I mean, she that that's a good point that I, you know, that is a big leap to see from her smashing the lamp to, you know, what she's going through as he, he says he was incarcerated for a while on suicide watch. And then he ends up at um, Serenity Oaks, which is he, he mentions is the same hospital he was at after he attempted suicide in college. So he knows some of the staff and he's been there before they some of them remember him. Um, but yeah, this incident with Kira is what gets Dylan sent back to the mental hospital. And and then we kind of transition into Dylan at the hospital, and we see that the demon is still very much present there and taunting him. Um, and it's mentioned that he only has a week left before his next sacrifice is due, so there's kind of a reminder of that. Which, which, is, a month. which is interesting because there was a bloodbath with the gang, with the Russian mob. 
I figured he had a good six months of uh, paid in advance. If you can pay, if you can pay rent in advance, you know that that first guy that that was looking for for Kira that was killed on Halloween that takes care of October, but he killed um, the 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 guy who informed on the mob, you know, by himself. Then the four in the building. Then the Russian mob boss himself. That's that's a good half year if you can pay. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the the logistics logistics and economics of dealing with a, a demon that demands a murder every month. But if you can pay in advance, he should be good for a while. That you know, yeah. We're gonna have to look at the fine print on the contract there and see exactly what's stipulated as a as a kill or a time frame. You know, see what the see what the de- security deposit policy is and all that. You know. Yeah. That was the first thing I thought of. Is like, oh no, he should have plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the only reminder in the issue that you know, there's a you know, he like I said, he keeps taunting him about doing another kill, but that's the one mention of of a of a specific time frame. So he says he has a week. Well, obviously, that's an interesting predicament considering that um, Dylan is institutionalized in a seemingly sec- very secure facility. So it definitely wouldn't be. Uh, quite as easy for him to find a victim as it would be, you know, on his own living in an apartment. And maybe we'll will will we'll find out either flashing back to to Kira or perhaps to Dylan's mom or to both. Because I can't imagine that Kira on her own, uh, just by reporting this incident, would would have him not only evaluated at Bellevue but um, yeah, institutionalized in a, uh, a in a rural mental hospital. So. Yeah, and so, you know, Dylan's just uh, frustrations continue, like I said, with the demon taunting him at every scene. So we see, again, another montage at the hospital where the the demon is following him everywhere and taunting him, um, saying st- things like, we have a pact, I will have my blood. Um, and so we get to a point, he says he's on some new meds at the hospital, but they haven't done anything to rid him of the demon um, so the issue circles back to the group therapy session that it opened with. Um, and Dylan begins to talk uh, to the doctor there and to the group because he feels out of options and hopes he decides that revealing the demon may be the only way he can take the power away from him. So he starts to tell the doctor that there's a demon right there in the room, um, then reveals that the demon makes him kill people and that he wears a red mask and is the vigilante that the police are looking for. And this is kind of the big reveal of the comic, but the doctor just starts to laugh and, and laughs it off and says, Dylan, that tells Dylan that it's obviously a made up story. Says that Dylan has been at the hospital for three weeks and the vigilante killed three people last night. Uh, so obviously that raises all sorts of questions, and that's where the, the issue leaves us hanging. Um, and I honestly, yeah, so like I said, it raises all sorts of questions of did the demon find a new killer to to get his blood did someone take dylan's place more than one vigilante or a copycat you know and i i for one don't really have a good guess on uh the answer for where this other who this other vigilante is that the doctor's mentioning oh. and and with again this being a a an apparently limited series you know, this this is a sort of development. Like, well, where are they going? Yeah, copycat would be the first obvious thing. But and and either way, it does uh, give him a convenient alibi for at least some of the murders being attributed to this killer. So, um, but yeah, if this was going to be a um, 
a, a series going on for years and years, you you know maybe this would be the eventual uh, the the eventual sidekick. You know the legacy you pass on pass down the mantle of the uh, the red ski mask. Maybe maybe an adversary. You know, but I don't know. It it, it, it of all the things I you know I've come to expect a cliffhanger. Um, on the last page, from issue to issue, and in that sense, it's a, this has been an ongoing story. Where talking about, we can certainly talk about the the, the, the uh, trade paperbacks um, and and the arcs within each one, but it it really each one is not n- nearly as self-contained as say the the arcs um, the the period specific arcs in Fatal. But I've come to expre- expect uh, a cliffhanger at the end and. That's another reason I'm looking forward to this uh, graphic novella. See what happens without that that artificial constraint of uh, serialized uh, storytelling. But this one just came out out of complete left field. So yeah. No, it really did. Yeah, like I said, I don't even have an educated guess. I mean, if it were certain creators, you know, you could see. I could see maybe somebody going down the path of. Uh, you know, Dylan, you know, as a kind of a easy out is that, you know, Dylan wasn't the vigilante at all and that, um, you know, it, it was all, you know, some kind of figment of his imagination. He was manifesting somebody else's actions on his own. But like I said, they've made it a point to say, hey, this isn't just going to be, you know, Dylan talking to a psychiatrist at the end. So it's like I don't I mean, that would cheapen it, I think, to go down that route. I, I, I could see that being an out for how this story would wrap up, but in this instance, it just doesn't make sense. And like I said, so I just don't have any guess as to where this is headed. Yeah, and it has been a long time, not a long time, but it's. It, I, I don't know if any of the cliffhangers have been quite as surprising as this one, at least in, yeah. this, in this series. So. Yeah, usually I could at least maybe stab a guess at, you know, kind of what was coming or what the cliffhanger was indicating, but in this instance, no, I, I, I don't really have. Yeah, like you said, the copycat thing does seem like an obvious uh, place for it to head, but, but yeah, it raises all sorts of questions. So it will be interesting to see where um, the next issue takes it, which we're you know about to get here later this week. Yep. Yeah, Bubba. What else did you have about a uh, number fifteen before we? transition into recommendations i i think i think that is that is it just um i don't i i think really particularly with what the assignment was i think a lot of praise has to be due has to be given to number one to sean phillips for um having the the demons so prominent in this issue but but not making the you know not wearing out the demons welcome but then you know uh, uh, extra gold stars or whatever extra acclaim has to go to, to Betty Brightweiser. This is her issue in terms of of really shining in terms of uh, uh, of the the um, colors from one winter scene to the next, from day to night, exterior to interior, and particularly when um, when things go off the rails, when things you know uh, um, both in that fight between Dylan and the demon and Mason. And then this reveal at the very, very end, we see the same sort of uh, splotchy, magenta, purple, you know, very clear indication that things are going off the rails. So <laughs> I'm not sure Dylan has had much success with any sort of um, 
<laughs> any, I don't know if there are any mentors in his in his life, but but you know the psychiatrist here, the psychiatrist he was seeing beforehand, you know as as terrible as or as rough a life as Kira has had um, up to this point, you know before she started dating a vigilante serial killer. Um, it seemed like she had more of a uh, of a relationship with a mentor with her. Um, therapist than Dylan has had with really anybody and the sort of you know the the academic but not very empathetic um, you know eyes over the rim of the glasses look from the uh, from the psychiatrist here <laughs> it doesn't seem like anybody other than Kira is really interested in in Dylan's well-being so yeah, and that's the other thing I was thinking of too that it's so another reason I think it's so hard to predict on where this could be headed if there's someone still doing vigilante killings is that Dylan's yeah, he's had so few contacts with anybody really. Um especially people that are alive. I mean, you have his mom, um who's elderly, you have Kira, you have Mason, and then about everybody else is dead. I mean, at that point, there's just there's there's so there's hardly any. I, it's hard for me to come up with somebody out of left field that has some um, there some is, kind of relationship with Dylan where you could see like you know them taking up this mantle. Yeah, there is no suspect list. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's really not. Uh, you know, unless his half brother ends up being alive or something you know crazy off the wall like that. It's like who you know who else. You can't even predict the the unconventional person it could be because there's just so few ca- cast of characters really to to choose from. Yep. But definitely looking forward to seeing seeing what happens next. So. Yeah, I think we'll use this uh, opportunity. We'll kind of transition into our monthly recommendations to uh, wrap up the episode. Um, I think uh, Bubba was going to recommend a film, and I've got a comic to kind of briefly talk about. Yep, and uh, we are. Um... I guess this is partly the you know because we're in the middle of winter. Um, the uh, the commentator uh, Mark Stein he, he he you know has this sort of a Patreon uh, setup where where those who support his website you know get access to additional stuff. And one of the things he's been doing is reading um, public domain audiobooks. And he he read a couple of Winter Tales, you know, Jack London's To Build a Fire. And Google Google's uh, the overcoat, and um, very different winter tales. One of them rural, one of them urban. You know, one of them in Alaska, the other in Russia. Um, and you know, with with the weather being very cold and very wet and very dreary the last few weeks, I've just been on a kick of uh, of winter stories from those there to to the gray, which I think is the the best. Um, you know, when you're snowed in movie, and you you know, and you want to watch a guy flick, that's that's probably up there. Uh, Liam Neeson's The Gray, and then I still need to get around to seeing The Edge, which is one of the other, I guess, cultural illusions um, in in Kill or Be Killed, the uh, the Anthony Hopkins, um, Alec Baldwin uh, movie written by uh, David Mamet. But the film I I want to recommend is uh, tonight is uh, Lock. Uh, written and directed by Stephen Wright, starring almost entirely starring Tom Hardy. Um, it's it's a short film, about ninety minutes. Came out in twenty fourteen. It's it's a low budget uh, film. It's 
you know borderline experimental in its in its presentation. It's basically a guy in in a car uh, on a rainy uh, um, rainy night in England, uh, driving down the, uh, the the English version of of the highway, the freeway, um, taking phone calls, making placing phone calls, and and that's it. Um, and you know, if you if if you rent the movie or, or buy the movie and you check out the extra features, you find out that that the actor Tom Hardy was actually he had a cold during the very short, you know, like the four days of production that they were doing. And they decided to just incorporate that in into the movie, so he's downing cough syrup while he's while he's driving along, and it's. I think those who are who are fans of mo- of of books like Killer Be Killed will like a, a movie like this. And I don't want to give anything away about the, the details, but um, it raises the same sort of dilemmas that Killer Be Killed does that, you know, with Killer Be Killed and and with a lot of the books or the, the, um, the, the titles that Killer Be Killed kind of riffs off of, you know, like Spider-Man, you know, the Peter Parker versus Spider-Man, you know, the romance and the, the, the heroism, you know, being pulled in, in different directions. It's a great line from uh, the first Master and Commander novel um, about how, yeah, that that laws are the prime cause of unhappiness, and it's not that we're required to 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 obey only two sets of laws, and we're being pulled in two different directions. We're being pulled in six or eight different directions. You know, that that's a big reason I was was uh, missed recording last last month with my schedule is you know the old U two song running to stand still, and and I have made. No pact with uh, with no supernatural demons, you know. Um, and this one is about being pulled in a in a couple different directions. It's about you know the uh, uh, the costs of your decisions. And check out the trailer. You can ch- check out the trailer on YouTube. It doesn't give away the what's going on beyond the premise. Neither does the bur- blurb on the back. But it is it is engrossing. You find out very early on what's going on. And you're just – you're not only stuck with, with the main character in the car for the duration of the trip. You're, you're with him as well. You're struggling with him and wanting to see you know, wanting to see how the uh, story's main questions are answered. And um, a lot of stories, you know, noir, uh, um, you know, I think they can all boil down to two types of questions, the moral question and the mortal question. The moral question. Is the character going to do the right thing? The mortal question is he going to make it through it. Um, you know, or, or you know, if you reduce it to like a sports movie, is, is he going to win the big game? Uh, Rocky, I think, was about both whether the boxer was going to to whether he was going to persevere, and then the question was, you know, whether he was going to win win the uh, the dream fight that he had. But this one, Lock, um, ninety minutes, twenty fourteen. It's uh, described this way, the black blurb that, that tells you everything and nothing about the movie is that Ivan Locke is a successful businessman dedicated to his loving wife and children. But tonight, everything will change as a series of phone calls triggers a shocking chain of events and unravels Ivan, Ivan's seemingly perfect life over the course of a single, unforgettably intense car ride. Yeah, that's just a hell of an acting performance by Tom Hardy, for sure. Yeah, yes it is, yep. And I mean, it's not, it's not just, it doesn't just exist as a novelty to have, you know, basically the entire film be him in, a, him in his car. It exists because it's, it's 
it's a really powerful way to tell the story. Yep. And it's a really powerful story, too. Without yeah, giving sure. anything away, it's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to uh, give a quick recommendation to The Private Eye, which is a, a sci-fi detective noir comic uh, written by comics golden boy Brian K. Vaughn, uh, drawn by Marcos Martin. Um, the first issue was was published online. It was an interesting, kind of an interesting story that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. But um, they this was a fully digital comic that was published online. Um, this website, Panel Syndicate, in March 2013, and you could, you know, they had this pay what you want model to where you could, in theory, download it for free. You could, you could pay whatever you want. You know, similar to the strategy I think that Radiohead used. Um, you know, a couple albums ago when they released a surprise album online and had this kind of pay pay what you want model. Um, but anyway, the the series is now available. Um, Image Comics actually released this kind of widescreen um, hardback collection of all ten issues, uh, which is what I revisited recently. Uh, but it it was a, a quite acclaimed an acclaimed series. In in 2015, the series won an Eisner for uh, best digital web comic and the Harvey Award for Best Online Comics Work. Um, So yeah, like I mentioned, it was self-published by the creators digitally through their website. Um, And then in December 2015 is when the uh, hardcover came out from Image Comics. And I usually, I actually have mixed feelings about uh, Brian K. Vaughn in most instances. I definitely enjoy his comics. Uh, He's, you know, obviously can, he's great at writing snappy, clever dialogue. Um, But occasionally I feel like he's, you know, maybe more beholden to his trademark style than what the story actually calls for. Um, but in the private eye, though, I think the style matches the material very well, so that's not a problem at all. It doesn't distract from the story at hand. It's a, it's a good match. This, the series is set in 2076 in L.A., um, a time after what they call the cloud has burst. So it, uh, it's a post-internet world. Um, once this cloud burst, it it revealed everyone's secrets, and as a result, there's there's no more internet. That's a thing of the past, um, and I'm sure that the creators understood the irony of this by of releasing a, a digital only web comic uh, set in a world where there's no internet. So people are are excessively guarded about their identity to the point of appearing only masked in public, and so the the main the main protagonist is a is a detective who goes by the name Pi. Uh, so he goes by his name naturally, um, but he he becomes involved in this mysterious plot. And again, I won't I won't give it away. There's lots of twists and turns and and reveals throughout the story. The art style is really interesting too. I I wanted to mention it. It's it's a little bit it's different. You know, it's not the typical dark and brooding noir style art. It's this kind of neon day glow colors. Um, so it's kind of an interesting effect. You know, you, the plot is definitely full of you know, private investigators and cops and mistaken identities and double crossing. So many of the the familiar detective noir tropes, but the art is not what you typically associate with with noir style artwork, but it's really, really well done. Um, And yeah, I think it's worth checking out if you're a a fan of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' work. Again, it's not overly similar to anything they've done, but uh, this particular story, The Private Eye, um, definitely got some interesting crime comic elements in it. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed revisiting it thoroughly here when I read it in the last month. But, yeah, that's a couple recommendations for this month as we uh, kind of get set for Killer Be Killed number 16, which, like I said, is out later this week. So we're going to 
hustle and get this episode edited and uh, posted prior to to Wednesday. Um, but again, we appreciate everybody listening in this evening as we uh, break down Killer Be Killed number fifteen. Appreciate you uh, jumping on board, Bubba. Yeah, it's a blast as always. Glad to be back. Definitely. Uh, again, you can always find our our episodes at undertow.podbean.com. Um, you can follow us at Undertow Podcast on Twitter. You can listen in on iTunes, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. I think we will sign off for this month, and we will be back next month to uh, talk about the next issue of Killer Be Killed. So we appreciate everyone listening, and uh, we will see you on down the road. Talk of circles, the bungee.